Living Corporate is brought to you by The Access Point. The reality is, this is the largest influx of black and brown talent corporate America has ever had. And as a result, a variety of talent entering the workforce are first-generation professionals. The other reality? Most of these folks aren't learning what it means to navigate a majority white workplace in their college classes. Enter The Access Point, a live weekly web show within the Living Corporate Network that gives black and brown college students the real talk they need and likely haven't heard elsewhere. Every week, our hosts and special guests are dropping gems, so don't miss out. Check out The Access Point, airing every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Central Standard on livingcorporate.tv. What's up, y'all? This is Zach with Living Corporate, and we're here. It is yet another week. Uh, More and more black trauma at the hands of the state and a society that just, I don't know, doesn't seem to want to listen or learn. You have about 400 years of evidence that the folks who have the power to actually change don't want to. You know, I I look at uh, the media. I see that we're, you know, we're closing up on the Derek Chauvin trial. And we're still it's just like we're having the same conversations over and over and over. It's exhausting still. Right. So for anyone who who didn't listen to last week or if you did listen to last week's episode and you're wondering how I feel this week. I feel the exact same way. Right. It's exhausting to turn on the TV and see folks argue about whether or not George Floyd was killed as a result of having a knee on his neck. But you know, it reminded me of corporate America for black and brown people. And this dance that we do to try to look for any excuse to hold those in positions of power accountable. We will blame the victim as much as we can. And, you know, victim blaming in corporate America, it's very eerily similar to victim blaming uh, of black folks and brown folks who are victims of uh, the state of police brutality. So, you know, if you're listening at all to uh, the defense in this murder case, You'll hear folks say, well, he was on drugs. Well, he was exposed to the carbon monoxide by the exhaust pipe. Well, he was unhealthy. Right. All these excuses to point away to eschew the fact that this man was choked for over nine minutes and Understand that the defense isn't saying, hey, the knee was a factor. They're saying, no, the knee had no factor. It was all these other things that were George Floyd's fault. And similar to that, black folks are often held to high, high, high points of accountability, over accountability when they raise or ask questions about how they're being mistreated, right? 
So it's not the fact that you're not getting your sponsorship has nothing to do with people being unwilling to sponsor you. You're not telling your story effectively, right? Well, you're being disrespected because you're not communicating effectively enough. People would respect and appreciate your work if it was a bit more polished. People would listen to you more if you dressed differently. People wouldn't talk over you if you enunciated your words better. Right. It's always some type of point of accountability. There's always something that we're not doing enough of to justify the abuse that we receive. And I I really want folks who listen to Living Corporate to start thinking. And if you're not already connect the dots, these systems that create harm outside of the workplace don't stop inside the workplace. They just look different. But y'all, we should not be having conversations about equitable treatment for black and brown people when we're dead. Like there are degrees and levels of mistreatment and abuse. And look, if we're having these kind of dialogues in the face of someone being murdered on camera, what conversations are we missing of folks being abused at work? Right? That's a much lower degree, right? And at the same time, You have a right as a human being to go to your job and be treated fairly and be treated respectfully with honest, accountable and inclusive leadership. So that's what we're going to continue to push. That's the kind of conversations we're going to continue to have here. That's what I'm going to continue to focus on. I want to look at these systems. I want to look at the world. I want to look at current events and I want to connect them back to our experiences in our nine to five jobs. That's what I want to do. So I'm thankful. I'm thankful for you for rocking with us. I'm thankful for the team. Shout out to the break room was recently featured in a Forbes article. Um, Thank you so much, Dr. Gassum, for all of your work in Forbes. And thank you to the entire break room team. Looking good out there. Appreciate y'all. Look, before um, we get to the next part of the show, I'm excited to get to there. I have another housekeeping update. So the See It To Be It series hosted by ABC Wanniger used to be on Saturdays. If you haven't noticed, See It To Be It is now on Wednesdays. All right. So shout out. And then my other update is the first episode of Liberated Love Notes hosted by Brittany Janae Harris launched Monday, yesterday. So if you haven't checked out Liberated Love Notes, I want you to go ahead, look in the show notes, click that link, go to Apple Podcasts, give us five stars. All right, check it out. It's very good content. Very excited about it. Very timely episode as well. Make sure you give it a look. Now, today's episode is pretty cool because we actually able to speak to two leaders from Uncork. And just excited for y'all to listen to that because we talk a lot about their experiences as uh, Nigerian Americans, their experience in STEM, transitioning into this engineering space, uh, their work at Uncork, what advice they have, not just for other black professionals, but for leaders seeking to create more inclusive and equitable spaces for black professionals. I'm so excited for us to check out that interview. But before we do that, we're going to tap in with Tristan. I'll see you in a minute.
What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. Today, let's discuss how you can politely say no at work. We've all been there, where we wanted to say no to coworkers and sometimes even our bosses, but we aren't sure how to phrase it. Being able to say no is a skill that you must master to achieve success at work. There are times when you have to set boundaries to focus on the workload you currently have instead of piling on more. Erica Pierce, Millennial Leadership Coach at the Millennial Boardroom, provided four great ways to politely say no in a recent email that I wanted to share with you all. First, thank you, but I'm not taking anything else on right now. By starting with thank you, you're being nice and respectful. The second part of that statement implies that you've already got your hands full, which explains why you cannot take on the request. Lastly, by saying right now, you're letting them know that it's not because you can't do the task, but you need to prioritize your time. Second, I'm not able to commit to that right now. While this statement communicates the same thing as the previous point, it's a bit more firm in its phrasing. You can follow up this statement with a very brief explanation of why you feel you have to say no, but be careful not to get into over-explaining. Third, unfortunately, it's not a good time. By saying unfortunately in this statement, it acknowledges that the task presented to you is important and that you empathize with your coworker. Here, you can follow up with an alternative option or something like, I'll let you know if I can help as soon as I'm done with this task. Lastly, thank you for thinking of me. I really wish I could. This statement is a bit more enthusiastic than the others, but still communicates that you know your limits. This helps your coworker or boss not feel as bad for having their request rejected. Look, I understand saying no at work can be uncomfortable. Believe me, that's a common problem in the workplace. But by using these phrases, the people you work with will understand if you can't do something at the moment, and likely they won't hold it against you. Check out more on Erica Pierce at www.themillennialboardroom.com. Thanks for tapping in with me today. Don't forget, I'm now taking submissions from you all on career questions, issues, concerns, or advice you think may help others. So make sure to submit yours at bit.ly forward slash tap in Tristan. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Living Corporate is brought to you by The Break Room. Have you ever felt burnt out, depressed, or otherwise exhausted by being one of the onlys at work? You know what I'm talking about. Hosted by black psychologists, psychiatrists, and PhDs, The Break Room is a live weekly web show in the Living Corporate Network that discusses mental health, wellness, and healing for black folks at work. Name another weekly show explicitly focused on mental health, wellness, and healing for black folks at work. I'll wait. This is why you got to check out The Break Room, airing every Thursday at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time on livingcorporate.tv. Dammy, David, welcome to the show, y'all. What's going on? How y'all doing? Hi, good afternoon. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Now, look, I'm excited and I'm, you know, we we don't typically do like two at a time, but we do. We've done it in the past. Let's roundtable this because both of y'all have such dynamic backgrounds and careers in tech that got you to your management roles at, at Uncork. To start with, what is Uncork and what do each of y'all do at Uncork? Uncork is a no-code enterprise platform um, that's used by 
organizations to build mission critical applications, right? Um, basically, no code means we're not writing any code. A lot of the work we do is using drag and drop um, to build these applications that our clients use. So, in a nutshell, I guess that's kind of what Encore is. And so then, and so then, when you say no code, like. And I, I heard what you said, but so I'm so I am not a I'm not a STEM person. I don't I don't have a STEM background, so I can go on Uncork and essentially build a website or build things not using code. Like, how does that work? Yeah, pretty much. Um, there's you know think of them as in a way form builders that allow you to drag in different components, right? So if you wanted to build like an email form right i want to get emails for everybody who's going to be on this podcast um you can pull in like a field for the first name last name email address add some rules under that that say the email has to be this particular um structure you know david at blah 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 dot com <laughs> something like that add a button that allows people to submit it send them a confirmation all without writing any code um and just pull in data fields in to do all that stuff well, let's talk a little bit about what y'all do. I mean, and Dammy, I know David went first last time, so I'm, let me give you the ball real quick. So, you know, how would you describe your role uh, at Uncork? Yeah, I am an engineering manager here. So I manage um, two of our engineering teams. And um, like in more practical terms, that involves um, people management on one hand. So I'm responsible for the growth and development of the engineers on my team, um, you know, like making sure that they, they're happy, making sure that they're challenged, um, that they have the right opportunities available to them to help them grow. Um, and then there's delivery ownership as well, right? So ensuring that as an engineering team, we are able to deliver um, on our commitments. Um, and that involves sort of helping my team clear any blockers in their way, um, you know, really shielding them from any issues that will slow down their work, um, defining processes to help us work smarter and more efficiently as a team. Um, another piece of that, of, of engineering management, is um, owning, hiring, and building out of the teams, right? So, on Quark is rapidly growing, and, you know, we're always hiring, and so um, and I'm involved in you know, just owning that entire process for, for the teams that I manage. Um, and also like defining what our recruitment process looks like for engineering. Um, and then I'm also involved in um, helping to shape our engineering culture, um, shape our identity as an engineering organization as we expand. And so, you know, we're going to get into this a bit. Um, you know, I, I do want to understand like the dynamic of just what it means to, to, to lead. Um, you know, in tech as black professionals, as Nigerian uh, professionals, you know, but let's talk a bit about your respective journeys and how you got your current roles at Uncork. And I know, David, really, maybe you could start because we didn't really get into what it means to be an engagement director, but I'd love to hear more about that and really like your broader journey and how, you know, how you got here today. Sure. Um, just so an engagement director at Uncork, my role is more on the client face inside. So I'm responsible for the execution of our projects for our enterprise clients, um, building out those applications that we kind of talked about earlier on. Um, a lot of project management, program management, you know, working with the customers to understand what it is they're trying to build, what we're actually trying to accomplish, um, and what problems we're trying to solve with the applications we're building. 
um, for those clients. Um, you know, it involves, you know, two, there are two facets of, I think, management to it, right? The first one is just pure people management um, and having direct reports. But on the other side of that, because we're working with a project team, there are multiple different groups of people on that project team. So I have developers, business analysts, solutions architects um, that as far as the project is concerned, more or less report to me. Um, and from that perspective, I'm responsible for them. I'm responsible for, I think, the way Dami put it is making sure they're happy and they're fulfilled in the work that they're doing and they have everything they need um, to do their job. And whether that's clearing blockers or making sure they're doing the right work on the project, um, you know, that's one aspect to it. Uh, how did I get here and what was my journey getting to Uncork? I come from a technical background. Um, I, you know, have a bachelor's in aerospace engineering, um, a master's in computer information systems. And, you know, I kind of decided early on in my undergrad that I wasn't going to be an aerospace engineer. Um, it just, it, it wasn't for me. Um, but this was like three years in. So I thought, you know what, we'll see this through and then we'll see what happens. And um, I was fortunate. Um, I was able to do a master's in computer information systems. And I started off my career in consulting, um, implementation consulting to be specific. Um, and, you know, I've kind of followed that throughout my journey, software implementation, and that's kind of how I got to Uncork today. And then Dami, how about you? So I stumbled on, on tech sort of entirely by chance. I, I started college as a pre-med major um, and, and, you know, along the way just ended up finding um, computer science because it wasn't something I was exposed to um growing up and um yeah once i graduated i also got a master's um in in software engineering um i worked at a couple of um, small startups down in georgia and then got into consulting for many years and um you know eventually joined on cork but I've, I've been in tech um my entire career as well and then how did that transition into uncork um, let's see. So after after doing consulting for for many years, I decided I needed some some stability in my career, and I initially went to a pretty large um, company, um, and it wasn't it wasn't a good match for me. I didn't really you know enjoy the large company culture, and I wanted to be in a startup environment, and so um, but I also wanted to be in a place where I knew that my contributions would be sort of impactful and um, appreciated. And, you know, coming to interview at Uncork, I, I felt that immediately. And so, um, yeah, so, you know, I joined probably about a year and a half ago, and um, it's probably been one of the, the best uh, decisions of my career so far. Let's talk about Nigeria. Both of y'all are Nigerian. Now, let me ask a follow-up question. Yoruba, Igbo, like, <laughs> what is the... Yeah, y'all didn't know. Yeah, I don't know. Y'all didn't know. I know. Yeah, I can. I can tell y'all surprised. But remember, I live in Houston, right? So a lot oh, of my yeah, friends. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everybody knows Houston is like the land of 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 the Nigers, right? I, yeah. I love y'all. It's it's great out here. Um, but yeah. So talk talk to me a little bit about like about your cultures, please, and like and background and and tribes and all of that stuff. I'd love to learn more about about that piece. You know, your journey in Nigeria and growing up there and how, how you were introduced to STEM there, the transition to America, like talk to me about how those things came together. 
Yeah, so both of us are Yoruba, but I'll, I'll let David um, talk for himself when, when you get to him. Um, honestly, I wasn't, um, like I mentioned earlier, I wasn't, uh, I don't know, I wasn't super exposed to technology growing up. Or maybe I should say I wasn't, I didn't think much about technology growing up, right? Um, I don't recall how young I was the first time I played with a computer, but it was somewhere in my um, twin years, right? I attended a summer school and, and one of the classes I took had us working on these um, early Apple machines, um, but there was really nothing no noteworthy about that experience. And I didn't do much with computers after that other than um, playing video games. Um, and then in the last couple of years of high school, that was when, you know, email became popular. So, you know, I had my first email address and um, but yeah, I didn't honestly didn't think much about technology. I wasn't like I said, I was um, I was a pre-med student, so I never even really thought about engineering. What I will say though is that um, you know here there's this sort of um, I guess false notion that um, women are not good at STEM careers. Um, growing up in Nigeria, I was exposed to sort of quite the opposite belief, right? The, um, the the common belief was that women and then girls were in fact better at um, sciences and they were better at math and so um, I just always um, I always excelled at math I always excelled at sciences and there was never anything um, you know said to me or anything I was exposed to that made me feel like I wouldn't be good at it. And so then when we talk about like the the background in in growing up in Nigeria and then transitioning to the states like what did that look like for y'all? Um, for me, I think it was a shock, right? Um, when I came to the States, what, 2005, something like that, it was actually my first time in America. I had been other places. I just had never been to the States. Um, and, you know, I think my parents put me on a flight and they're like, all right, go forth and prosper pretty much. And it was like, all right, go do your thing. Good luck. Um, I was young, wide eyed. I think I came here and one of the biggest shocks was, I think coming from Nigeria, there's a distinct lack of teaching, I guess, in terms of code and the core sort of software engineering or computer science, right? I had never written code in my life when I moved to the States. Um, I didn't even know what code was, right? I'll be honest. Um, and that was one of the challenges for me because, you know, I got into school, I was a freshman and I was working with these other freshmen who knew what this thing was. They knew how to manipulate it. They, they knew what they were looking at, right? Um, it made sense to them. and there was a bit of sort of imposter syndrome because it was, oh, I guess I should know this stuff. Um, but you don't know what you don't know. So it took a little bit of time to wrap my head around what really code was and how it was used to build software. You know, coming from Nigeria, technology is engineering. Um, and that means mechanical engineer, civil engineer, or, you know, whatever other engineering majors you can think of, but it doesn't really go deep into the actual, you know, learnings of actually being able to write code or use MATLAB and things like that. And that was the biggest challenge for me personally, was just not understanding this stuff um, and having to start, 
in a way, so far behind everybody else that was a pair um, that it always felt like I was playing catch up at the beginning. Eventually, I caught up, right? Um, but yeah, I think that was kind of the biggest challenge for me personally. So, Dami, when you hear David's story about, you know, this transition and catching up and the sense of imposter syndrome, can you relate to that at all? Was, is that anything similar to your experience? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, the education system in Nigeria is very different than the one in America. And um, exactly what David said, like I remember signing up for um, Calculus 1, and, and I think they signed me up based on my SAT scores. But the math classes I had taken in Nigeria were nothing um, similar to, to the calculus class. And so I just wasn't ready for that. And um, exactly like you said, you know, I had to use MATLAB and I just didn't know what I was doing. Um, whereas everyone else in class had been exposed to this before. And, you know, the additional thing about being Nigerian is that Nigerian families and parents are just sticklers for excellence, right? And you, I can't say it's a good or a bad thing, but like being second best or, or having less than a, a perfect score on anything is never acceptable. And so I remember being, in those first few calculus classes and just being terrified, right? I might like, you know, am I really going to fail at something? Um, <laughs> and so, but luckily I was able to, you know, in that situation, I was able to like get out of the class and actually move into a pre-calculus class that better prepared me. But there was definitely a sense of imposter syndrome um, just in general, you know, um, you know, even, even, you know, going back to the way that American schools um, teach is, is so different than the way that Nigerian schools teach, right? Everything here is, uh, more practical and you're learning things uh, in a way to, um, you sort of have to understand how you apply the the knowledge you're learning. Whereas in Nigeria, a lot of the way, a lot of things were taught were more um, theoretical. Um, so very different. Well, can you give me an example of what you mean? Um, yeah, I mean, even, you know, so I was pre-med when I started and so I took um, chemistry classes and, and physics classes. In Nigeria, my chemistry classes, I had to memorize, you know, I had to memorize the periodic table. You were never given uh, a chart when you're going in for exams. And you sort of had to memorize all of the chemical reactions and things like that. In America, you are in a lab and you're actually performing the, chem the, the, the chemical experiments and you're um, sort of practically learning how these, you know, chemicals interact. Whereas in Nigeria, it's, it's very um, it's very theoretical. It's very book based. Um, we did some some lab work, but it was primarily, you know, you just sort of had to learn and cram, um, you know, the theory behind all of the information you're you're supposed to be learning. David, does that resonate with you as well in terms of like the education style yep. between it, Nigeria and America being different? In that it's way? exactly what you know, Danny said, right? I think I guess the difference is like to to what she said, theoretical versus just you got to know this stuff, right? You know, coming from Nigeria, it was just about, you got to know this stuff to regurgitate it once you got into an exam <laughs> so that you could pass um, and then get your A and keep it moving. It wasn't about understanding why you needed to know this stuff and what the applications of it could potentially be down the road. Um, and I think that was what I struggled with, right? Like I, I took further math classes when I was in high school, right? Like I think actually, I think when I actually moved to the states at Florida Tech, like like Dami said, I actually got yeah, I skipped pre-calc. I think I skipped calc one, and they put me in a calc two class. I ended up having to go back to calc one, um, calculus one for that particular reason because I just knew how to put it down on paper but 
you know, when you're in college and you start to take more advanced classes, it's not only about knowing it. It's about understanding how you apply it um, to certain real world scenarios. And again, because of the major I was doing, the calculus things that we were doing were starting to show up in my aerospace engineering classes when we were talking about propulsion and all this stuff. And it's like, okay, I know what this formula is supposed to do or what it looks like, but I actually have no clue what the actual effect is. And at that level, that's what's important, right, is understanding the effect and how to use it to achieve the outcome you're trying to get. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty much what Dami said. So, you know, um, you know, I so I have uh, Nigerian acquaintances in my network and I have uh, Nigerian friends and, you know, I recognize, right, that culture informs experience, right, and that, you know, we are all black, right, there's a large diaspora. Um, and then there's unique experiences within um, each culture and community. Like, I'd love to learn more about, you know, your childhoods and, and, and kind of like what part of your culture helps has influenced you and helped you prepare for your career. I'm going to echo something I, I just um, talked about. And that was actually two things, right? Um, the first thing is that, you know, I wasn't, um, I wasn't hindered by the fact that I was, a woman or I was black or, or anything like that. And so um, getting into tech, um, I got into it because um, I loved it and I was good at it. And um, I was never burdened with the idea that I didn't belong um, because in Nigeria, you know, you, you can, first of all, everybody, <laughs> it's a bit of a monolithic culture, right? Most majority of Nigerians are, are black. And so you never, you're never made to feel inadequate because of your skin color. And so I just sort of, you know, knew that I could do whatever I wanted to do. So, so that was one thing. Um, the other thing is that um, Nigerian parents always expect you to overperform. And that <laughs> completely prepared me for a career as uh, a career in a field where I am underrepresented, right? Um, at various points in my career, I have had to outperform my peers to be on equal footing because I am a black woman and I'm not the norm in, in this field. And I think that growing up in a Nigerian family where that was an expectation definitely helped prepare me to to do that by default. You know, there's something about like when I when I speak to and I'm, I'm again you can't can't generalize or paint a whole group with a broad brush. One thing I love about Nigerians uh, the, the folks that I've met is there's a certain level of resiliency, right? Like we're just, we, we're going to get it done. We're going to do it right. Like, you know, we're going to, we're, we're going to, yes, that's wrong or that, that didn't go well, but I'm pushing forward, right? Like I'm not like, I'm going to, I'm going to achieve this goal. Um, and, and then there's also, you know, something in, in Ade, um, who is a co-founder of Living Corporate, she and I, and she's also Nigerian. And we were talking about, um, we were talking about like the culture of, you know, sending money back to your family. Like, may I ask, like, what does it look like to manage responsibility of, you know, supporting your family while you're also building a career here? Like, like, do you, do you feel as if that's something that, you know, your colleagues understand, or frankly, that your other black colleagues who are not Nigerian understand and appreciate? I'll be honest. <laughs> um, I think my family and sort of support in that sense it's my siblings, right? You know, um, my brother lives in New York. Um, he came here for college, also similar to, 
to the way I did. Um, and he's working. My sister is old. She's in Nigeria, but she decided she wanted to stay. Um, so I haven't had to do that in that sense. Um, but it's, I think the support goes beyond financially, right? It's support in terms of what do you need? Sometimes, and you know, my mother and I are like thick as thieves and she's never going to ask me for anything, um, (laughs) to be honest, but sometimes it's just realizing that somebody needs something and just being there and just offering it up without them having to ask. And that's kind of the extent. And, you know, I think that's something everybody does, right? I don't, whether you're black, white, whatever it happens to be, Nigeria, non-Nigeria. I think that's just for people, you know, if you're empathic and you have a family that you love, it's something you do for them because you feel like they've given so much to you in your life. Um, that you're now in a position where you're able to give back to those people, right? You know, my mother has sacrificed a lot for me, um, just personally. And it's, you know, I am now in a position where I can give back in whatever little way I can. So it's about being able to do that. It's not about, for me at least, just because I have to, because I want to, and it's the right thing to do, right? So let's talk about this. Look, you know, um, you, 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 let's go back. You just finished university. You got your first tech job. You're young. You're black. You have names that, well, for David is not. So let me, oh, you know what? That's a good, that's, that's, yeah. a, that's a, yeah, let's, let's talk about it. Hold on, let's talk about it. So, yeah. that's so, middle name. <laughs> yes. Babe, so, yes. And, and so let's talk about that. So, you know, culturally, right? Like, did you, did you come to the States and immediately start using your middle name or did you, I did. Um, And part of that was just because, you know, when I was younger, uh, I knew like when we traveled, it was kind of like how hard it was for people to just pronounce my name. Um, So when I moved (laughs) to the States, I had made a conscious decision before I got to the States that, you know what, I don't have time for this. And this is just too much. So I'm going to use my middle name. um, And I'm going to go by my middle name, my Nigerian friends um that are here they know my first name um it's Lekon, by the way um and they sometimes call me by that but i think i kind of made a conscious decision just because i didn't want to have to continually correct people um on how to pronounce my name uh part of that part of that's just by my nature like i'm an introvert and it just it was so much stress <laughs> to have to do that mm. um i was just like i'm just gonna make it easy for everybody and myself my name's david uh let's go with that uh it helps that it's on my license it's on my passport and all that stuff so it's a it's an easy thing um but yeah that that was kind of why damn it yeah. I, I do want to talk about just like coming out of university just in tech like what was that experience like but I asked David about his name. Is Dami is Dami your first name? Yeah, my first name is Dami. Um, it's Dami Lola, but everybody calls me Dami. And unlike David, I I walked into this <laughs> entire thing quite blindly, right? So in undergrad, I tried to get people to call me Dami Lola at first, and um, that tried my patience. And so I went down to Dami. But even that was difficult, right? They'd end up calling me Dummy. And I'm like, no, no, my name's not Dummy, it's Dummy. And um, it got to a point where, you know, at, on the first day of every semester, 
in class when you know they 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 do the roll call and they the professor will just pause right at my name and it'd be this awkward silence for about twenty seconds and you know I'd, I'd slowly raise up my hand like hi that's me um, so. I want to say probably in my sophomore year, I, I started having them call me D instead of Dami. And that was because, you know, I just got tired of trying to explain how to pronounce my name on, on one hand. And on the other hand, um, sophomore year, I was the first time I created a resume. I remember going up to the career uh, services department and they saw my name and they said, nope, don't put this in your resume. You got to put something simpler and something that would... Um, not make it obvious what your ethnicity wow. is. So yeah, and so they said, "Do you have do you have another option?" And wow. uh, a couple of my a couple of my friends had been calling me D just um, as a nickname, and so I said, "You know what? Let's just throw D on there." So I threw D Olutai on my resume, and then I started having them call me D in my classes. And honestly, I went by D until 2018. Um, and I've been in the I've been in corporate world since 2005. And 2018, I, I just sat down and I said, you know what, D is not my name. I actually don't like it. I want everyone to call me Danny. And you know, if it if it takes you a whole year to learn how to say my name, so be it. You're going to learn it. I love that because here's the thing, y'all. Like, you know, I I have yeah, it's a it's a privilege, right? Like that my name, Zachary, means God has remembered. Um, but you know, I've never thought like, yeah, I'm gonna go by a, a, another name, but that's part of just a lot of things, racism, uh, white supremacy as a whole, um, entitlement. Right. But I, I can't imagine, and it's, I, that, that hurts me. That hurts my heart that, you know, you're having to think about and navigate what you want people to call you just so it's easier for them. Right. Because we learn all kinds of hard European names all the time. Right. People at my job, you know, Libanowski and, uh, you know, all, like very, very challenging European names, right? Like we can learn these names, right? It's not, again, you know, shout out to Ade Shola, right? Like that's, again, that's Ade, like she's, you know, like you, we can, we can learn these names. I guess I, I'm, I'm a little taken aback though about the fact that you went to the career center. Yeah. And like the career center said change your name. Yep. And, and they were, they were honest with me. They said, you know, when they're looking through resumes, if they see your name is Dami Lola Lutayo, which is what I created at first um you might you might get your resume might get thrown away wow yeah well so let's talk about it let's talk about you know your first job in tech you know what was the process to like really get acclimated um or some, some of the challenges maybe that you faced you know what what defense mechanisms and how you kind of navigated those spaces trying to navigate being authentic like just talk to me about those initial lessons learned i think the first job right it was it was in consulting was fresh out of college out of my master's and one of the prevalent things for me was very early on i started to notice that i was the only black person in the room right um it wasn't like it it was just normal right like you walked into a room and you're meeting just because of the nature of the job you're meeting with you know, people that are directors or VPs or whatever it happens to be. And it's white people <laughs> pretty much, right? And you're the only black person there. And it became normal. Um, and, you know, it should never be normal. But the truth was it kind of became normal. It became my expectation. And I stopped being surprised about it very, very early on um, and just be like, 
you know, oh, yeah, that's normal. It's not a big deal. Um, I think, luckily, I was in an environment at the company that I was where there were minorities in the company. And, you know, but it still wasn't that many people in terms of the percentage. It was maybe a handful of us. Um, But there was still that, right? But every time I walked into this client meetings or went into like a workshop that I needed to do, I was the only one. And that kind of became the norm. It kind of became what it was. And in a way, it's really shaped my professional career over time because subconsciously, I guess, I go into these rooms expecting to be the only one. Um, And, you know, I maybe somewhere in the back of my head, uh, you know, you change the way you behave, you change the way you talk, you kind of, you know, have to be very conscious of the fact that in a way you're representing a whole race of people, which is, it's not fair to anybody to have to. But it's true. It's Um, true. Yeah, but it's true, right? That's the truth. That's the reality, right? Like you're representing a whole race of people and, you know, you're representing everybody who happens to be black. You know, you're also somehow representing everybody who's Nigerian um, or an immigrant from another country. Um, And you have to bear that in mind every time you have these interactions and just keep that in the back of your head because it's like, you know, I don't want this to be the only, um, like, if I mess up, I don't want that to be the only thing that people remember. Um, Again, because when you think of, you know, your name, the way you look, you kind of stand out, right? The thing with being the only person in the room that looks the way you do is that you stand out, right? Everybody notices you when you walk. They're not going to forget. They're not going to forget you. Yeah, and if you do something wrong, they're not going to forget. You know, I mean... If you do something right, I guess they're probably not going to forget, right? <laughs> Nobody really thinks about that. It's like, if you do something wrong, they're not going to forget. It's um, and, So, yeah. And, and so, David, like, that's just a good point. And I think, like, that's – so for me, right, like, I think about my own experience in corporate America is it – and I, and this is this is common for a lot of black folks, black and brown folks, is, you know, it's it's your mistakes that they remember. And they kind of – and now you have to – and you have to have some huge – I mean – undeniable wins for them to really count right like the 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 um the scales are not even for wins and losses right like the losses count much more and there's some there's some neuroscience to that and in the, in the fact that like people remember negative um negative uh, experiences and emotions much more vividly than they do positive experiences and emotions but it still speaks to some of the this the structural inequity and challenges from like just a social hierarchy perspective that black and brown folks have to deal with in that where in one room like let's say you know let's say you you have a meeting and you and you don't have a, a perfect agenda for the meeting then all of a sudden you know the whole meeting's done right whereas if you, there's some damn it were you laughing I did earlier yeah <laughs> so <laughs> so. But then, but then, like, if you look at your white counterpart, like, they don't always have an agenda. They just come and say, "Hey, y'all, we're going to talk about this today." Pull out, a, and then, and we, you know what I mean. So that that can be that can be exhausting. Dammy, I'm curious, like, as you were his, hearing what Dave was speaking to about his experience and things he's learned, like, you know, what what has what has your process been like, and and what have you really been picking up, and what have you picked up, especially in light of 
the murder of George Floyd, um, the 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 uh, the the presidential election, the insurrection on January sixth. Like, what have you like? What has it been looking? How have you been processing? Um, just navigating, not just uncorked, but just tech as a black professional. Yeah. Okay. So, loaded question. Um, I I do want to talk about sort of being in tech as a as a black professional. You know, I I got really lucky because my first tech job right out of college. Um, both of the founders of the company it was a small um, dev shop in in my college town. Both of the founders were black, and it was a very racially diverse company, right? And so you know, it's probably almost fifty fifty as far as like um, white versus black engineers. Um, and so I was able to be fully me and I was encouraged to be that. And it was, you know, a completely safe environment. I could make mistakes. I was given equal opportunities as, as everybody else. I had, um, you know, all the challenges and all the opportunities I wanted, but I didn't realize that it was such a bubble, right? Like once I left that company, I quickly realized how much of an anomaly that was in, in technology. Um, and, you know, all of the things that David, David said resonate completely with me, right? Like, I've had to, um, I, I realized, you know, once I left that company earlier, um, that, that I had to always be a thousand percent prepared, right, for, for every meeting. And that if I was going to propose an, an idea, I was going to, I needed to be a thousand percent sure about it, right? I wasn't allowed the same, an equal luxury of being wrong or an equal luxury of making mistakes as my um, my peers that didn't look like me. And exactly like David said, right? If I made a mistake, I was worried that it would stack up, not just against me, but against other women at the company or other brown and black people that happened to be at the company. So that that's one part. The other part of your question was about, you know, everything that's been happening in the country um, in recent times. I think that, um, you know, last summer after the, after George Floyd was murdered in in blood um, in broad daylight, I I had a really challenging time coming to work and being able to perform at my normal um, level. And because I was, you know, I had only been at the company for a few months at that point. I didn't know. Um, I didn't know what it was going to be like, right? I didn't know if I if I could come to work and talk about it. Um, but luckily, I you know the the meetings I had earlier on in that week, um, the people I spoke to really created space for me to to talk about it. They didn't ignore it. They were like, "Hey, you know, I know we have this meeting scheduled, but we don't have to, you know, we don't have to talk about this deliverable. Let's actually just talk about what's going on. You know, like, is there something you want to talk about? You want to." Um, share how you're feeling or do you want to not share how you're feeling and you know it was just really reassuring to to be able to to have those conversations at work and to be able to say look I'm not okay and I'm not going to talk about this deliverable today because I just want to talk about um, all of the craziness that's happening in the in the country right now um, and then we also um, I know David was a part of this we had like a company-wide um, sort of town hall meeting where you know, various black and brown people just, you know, just sort of openly talked about their experiences and, and um, shared how they were feeling. And, and I think that it was just very, very important for us to um, create space for all of us to have those, those difficult and uncomfortable um, conversations in light of everything that was going on. 
you know, all that being said, you know, we've been having this conversation very much so from the perspective of, you know, your two lived experiences as uh, black Nigerian professionals in tech at Uncork. The reality is, though, that like diversity, equity, inclusion and like our experiences aren't going to systemically or meaningfully change without the real investment and involvement from white leaders. And so talk to me about what are things you think leaders can do to better engage and support black and brown talent? I think for me, it's just, you know, and I know people use the word ally a lot, right? You know, be an ally. That's great. But the for me, it's being able to understand that people don't know what they should ask for or attain for if they've never been in that situation before or they don't or they don't know people who've been there before right um and this is you know pay inequity um like just generally like how you pay minorities women black and brown people compared to non-minorities or non-black and brown people um it's you know by and large the folks in those positions are non-black and brown people and i think the most important thing is making sure you can get people on equal footing right it's you know i I always kind of use an analogy of you know if you give somebody 10 bucks (laughs) and you give another person five dollars and then you say i am giving both of you a 10 percent increase right there's still a gap. Um, 10% sounds great, but you have to do the intentional work of moving the person who's further down the pole um, all the way in line with the other folks. And the problem is that person who's down that pole doesn't always necessarily know that they're being, you know, shortchanged um, or they're not on equal footing with everybody else. So it be, it, the onus is on leaders to make sure that they're doing that work and fighting for people behind the scenes because you don't ask, people only ask for what they're aware they can get, right? Um, and I think this is something that is prevalent in just minority circles. And, you know, I know there's study, studies that have been done about this, about how minorities generally ask for less, you know, whether it's pay, benefits, whatever it happens to be, right? Like they generally ask for less. Um, because they just don't know. So the onus now becomes on the person who's given to say, actually, that is not correct, right? Like, that's not where you should be. This is where you need to be and be in line with everybody else. And they need to do that work because the folks that don't know what they don't know aren't going to do that work. They're not going to be able to ask. Um, And I think also just listening and empathizing with how people feel. A lot of things happen in the everyday lives of minorities, you know, black and brown people that is not always out there in the open, right? People deal with a lot of these systemic issues and racism on a daily basis. Um, And sometimes they just brush it off, but just understanding the people you're working with, understanding the people that you're responsible for, and being able to pick out when something's wrong. And you don't need to talk to them about this, but just giving them the space to be able to say, hey, I need a minute because, you know, stuff's going on. Um, Just give me a, you know, and 
giving them the opportunity to say that I think is very important. So. And Dami, how about you? Um, yeah, I completely agree with everything David said. I'll say the other thing is, um, you know, making sure that you, you actually have an inclusive environment, right? I think that um, right now, everybody's, you know, talking a lot about, you know, having a diverse workforce, but um, you're not going to reap the benefits of that unless you actually allow that diversity to, um, to flourish. And, and that's making sure that people are able to express themselves fully at work and, and that their unique perspectives are valued, right? And, you know, especially sort of, you know, as, um, as someone growing teams, like, like me, for instance, right? It's like being mindful about bringing in people that will treat their colleagues um, fairly and, and with respect, regardless of how um, different they are, right? So, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a hiring manager. And one of the things that we absolutely keep tabs on during the interviews that I own is um, making sure that we, we talk about we talk about um, sort of how the candidates treated the brown and black people or the women on the interview panel during their during their their day of interviews with us, right? So even if we have a person that is a a 10x engineer, but if they managed to, to treat the the only woman on their panel poorly, or if they went out of their way to disregard the only brown person on their panel, then we unfortunately cannot hire them, right? Because bringing them into the organization will mean that they're going to treat the, you know, their colleagues that don't look like them um, in, 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 a, in a sort of, in a poor way, you know, um, based on, based on their, their interview. So it's just like making sure that we're having those conversations um, um, openly and we're considering these things as we grow out our teams. I think that that's, um, that's a big part. Yeah, and I think maybe to add one more thing, right, is just because Dami mentioned hiring and recruiting is I think tech companies need to be more intentional with going to where minorities exist, right? Um, if you're simply relying on your pool and just the people that apply to you to get that diversity, you're never really going to get it. We know for a fact that black and brown people are underrepresented in tech. So by that nature, you're going to get less people. Um, so companies need to be very intentional in going to these conferences that are specifically for minorities, right? Like, you know, shout out to Nesby National Society of Black Engineers. And like, there are so many organizations like that that are built for that particular purpose. And I think companies need to start being very intentional to say, we're going here for this particular reason because we're trying to recruit people that look a certain way or that are a certain way. Um, because that's the only way you're going to include, sort of increase that diversity pool and actually bring on this change and diversity that we all talk about, is being very intentional about it. Um, so completely agree with him. and then. One level above that is also making sure that there's representation across the leadership levels, right? One one mistake I see companies make is, you know, they'll hire, um, they'll have diversity on the junior amongst the junior engineers, um, but as you go higher and higher up the the ladder, 
you, you know, that diversity starts to fall off. Um, and for me, like some of my best work experiences have been in places where I had people that looked like me in senior leadership, right, where I could go to them and, um, you know, sort of ask them questions that are, you know, <laughs> unique, unique to, to me being a sort of black woman in technology and, and ask them questions and, and sort of understand how they navigated um, the waters when they were, you know, sitting in my shoes. Um, and so I think that, you know, not only hiring um, junior junior people, um, but also making sure that you're hiring in, in your C-levels and, and your other senior leadership roles, um, hiring diversity in your C-levels and other senior leadership roles. You know, I'm going to say something, Greg, because this is Living Corporate, right? So we're not owned by Uncork. Y'all are here. Uh, we're having a good time. I agree with everything you're saying. I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to go a little bit further. The reality is that tech needs to do an exponentially better job than they're doing if they really are serious about equity, right? Like you can't continue to do the same things you've been doing. Incremental change is not enough. Yeah. Um, it's not enough at all. We had a previous guest on it. The, the word is radical. We need a radical reimagining of inclusion, recruitment, engagement, retention. We need a radical uh, imagining of leadership accountability, behaviors, defining culture and the work at the workplace. Uh, and then to, to your point, David, um, we also need a radical uh, reimagining of where talent exists, right? And that really has to do with like placing black and brown people in positions to make those decisions. Because, you know, the idea that like, I'm going to get all my STEM folks from Stanford or all my STEM folks from, you know, this college or this or this program, that's over. Because in every city, there's some organization that's teaching black and brown people how to do STEM, right? Like that, like that, like you look at it, you see them, them in DC, you see them in Atlanta, Chicago, Houston, every major city, there's some organization that is aggressively focused on teaching folks how to code, right? Like there's plenty of non-traditional entryways into this space, into tech. And it's beyond time that organizations radically re review and shift their policies and strategies to make sure they're being inclusive of those spaces. There's folks who have been uh, nurses or they've been they've been whole different careers. And then at 35 decide, I'm going to learn how to code. I'm going to learn tech. And it is wrong if for those organizations. Um, it is it is wrong for tech to not honor the effort of those individuals who have learned and picked up these skills. And can better your company. So, like, I agree with both of y'all, but I just want to say a little bit more aggressive because, you know, what I'm saying I can do that, and y'all don't have to do it and get in trouble. So, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, look, this has been a dope conversation. I'm gonna wrap it up with this. What are each of you most excited about at Uncork in 2021? Definitely growth, right? Um, I, I've never been at a company at this phase of of high growth before, and it is a very exciting time to to be here right like this is the time when we're defining um what our culture looks like what our engineering identity is and i'm in a position where i'm able to um influence the direction we take um and so i'll say that that's that's the most exciting um thing for me this year you know echoing what dami said but to add one more to it right is growth in the work that we're doing especially on the engagement team right um and i think professional services as a whole and the customers we're getting into on cork the type of 
applications that we're building, um, I think they're going to be very important for us as an organization and being part of that journey that helps define what Uncork gets to do moving forward in terms of how we work with um, organizations to build pro to build applications for them, what those processes are, how we onboard SI partners and things like that. I think that's probably one of the most, um, th th that's the thing I'm most excited about is just being part of that process. So, Y'all, this has been a dope conversation. Like I'm super thankful. I appreciate you both. Um, I want to shout out Mark Wheeler, but I want to definitely shout out Netta Jenkins, who really, uh, oh, yeah. she's she's the homie, right? She's the one who really helped put all this together. And shout out Uncork. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. I hope y'all uh, come back. Yeah, thanks for having us. Um, this was great. Yeah, this is great. Thanks for having us. All right, we'll talk soon, y'all. Peace. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Living Corporate is brought to you by The Leadership Range, a podcast within the Living Corporate Network. Hosted by globally certified and Fortune 500 executive coach and leadership development expert Neil Edwards, the leadership range is focused on having real, raw, soulful, and accountable conversations about inclusive leadership, allyship, professional development. Every week is a new episode with new learning and new actions to take on to grow inclusively. Make sure you check out the leadership range everywhere you listen to podcasts. And we're back, yo. Shout out to Uncork. Shout out to Netta for the connection. Shout out to Mark. Look, I appreciate y'all. Looking forward to having Uncork back. Make sure y'all check out the links in the show notes. All of that good stuff there and learn more about Uncork and what they do. Look, um, take care of yourselves, right? Like all of us, we have PTO, right? We got some time off. Take your time off, right? If you need to go on leave, go on leave. Take care of yourself. Prioritize yourself. This world is unrelenting in how it will sap us of everything that makes us us. And if you wait on someone else to take care of you, you'll be waiting a long time. So especially in this season, and I feel like we've been saying this at least for the last year, prioritize your wellness, prioritize your wellness especially if you're listening to this and you're on the margins, you live in a world where the default is that you are not equal. Many folks do not see you as human, so they're not going to have the same considerations for you that you would have for you. So it's your responsibility to prioritize your own humanity by giving yourself a break. All right. I'm talking to you. You have the right to give yourself a break. Use your PTO your vacation time, your sick leave, talk to somebody, go to therapy, focus on yourself. It's okay. You have permission. You have permission to focus on yourself. Listen, y'all, I've appreciated all of the five-star reviews to Live in Corporate. I want to make sure that if you haven't given five stars to Live in Corporate on Apple Podcasts, just pause, click the link, you know what I'm saying? Give us five stars. Tell a friend, colleague, co-worker, supervisor about us. That's how we continue to grow. Until next time, this has been Zach. Peace.
Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.